the Lord, all that mention of sin and everything in those songs, what's that about? Why do we glory in that? What is it, what is it that has happened that's so wonderful that, uh, that we can sing about sin with confidence and joy and rejoicing and exalting God? We'll discuss that today in our passage. You'll be in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. The passage we're about to read together, it's a, it's a song of praise by Mary. It's often referred to as the Magnificat. And that's because in the Latin manuscript, the first word in the sentence is, is magnify. She magnifies the Lord. It's somewhat Mary's summary of what God has done for her and for all people. And it's filled with quotations of and allusions to the Old Testament. And it resembles quite a lot Hannah's song that we just read together in our scripture reading. And about this passage, John MacArthur writes, It reveals that Mary's heart and mind were saturated with the word of God. And the entire passage is a point-by-point reciting of the covenant promises of God. You know, many commentators are really quite astonished that a a girl this young, probably 13 to 15 years old, uh, a girl like Mary, that she's so familiar with the Old Testament. And if you recall our conversation from last week, Uh, One reason I believe that she is so acutely aware of what God is doing and what he's done for his people is because her relative Elizabeth has poured into her through discipleship. And and if that is accurate, it should come no surprise to us then at the end that Luke adds a kind of a summary saying that, and she stayed with Elizabeth for three months. So let's read it together beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has uh, filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months, and then returned to her home. Well, if you also remember from last week, or if you recall, I shared a number of things that God isn't doing. Do you remember that? Uh, He isn't saving you for the sake of saving you, that you can just founder in your life as it was before you got saved. That was one. He also isn't filling our lives with material possessions, with a whole lot of stuff. He isn't at work distracting our lives with busyness that goes on throughout our lives that in no way exalts God or the name of Jesus Christ. He's not working at that. And if I may, I'd like to add one more thing that he isn't doing. God isn't entertaining us. So many Christians today view Sunday morning at worship, at church, as an alternative form or method of entertainment where we can possibly see a good show, listen to a really hip band, 
perhaps make business contacts, hear a really nice talk that will get us motivated to go out for the week ahead. Thus, the, the assembly of God's people, it's been reinvented to mimic something like your or my experience might have been at the first Rocky movie. You know, every, everyone's all pumped up, excited, he's a champion, you walk out of there thinking, I'm going to conquer the world. And so much of that exalts man, so much of that attitude uh, that's present in churches today is exalting what we're going to do, what we're going to succeed at. But, but the church, it, it is not a theater. It's not entertainment. The assembly of God's saints is not for a show. God is not our court jester. He's not entertaining us. Christians assembled together to revere and to worship our Almighty God who has saved us. He saved us from our sins. Consequently, we magnify His holy name. We magnify Him. In the process, we become equipped through the Word to serve Him. So to borrow a line from a recent chapel message from a professor at Dallas Seminary, he used to be one of my professors this semester. He is one of uh, Pastor Weiler's professors he's currently in class with. Name's Professor Holstein. And he had a chapel message at Dallas Seminary for the students here just recently, and he shared one thing he doesn't need in worship. So there's one thing I do not need in worship, and I'm going to share it, he said. I do not need a fog machine. So... Just so you all know, Gerald has agreed and we're not going to get a fog machine. Folks, stuff like that is just juvenile entertainment. It's juvenile. It's embarrassing. What our souls actually need is to worship the Almighty God who has saved us from our, soul, from our sins. And that's exactly where Mary begins here in her song, verse 46, where she proclaims, My soul magnifies the Lord. Does your soul exalt the Lord this morning? As you come in, are you magnifying His greatness for what He has done? Because if you're a Christian, it should. It should. You should be able to rejoice in the Lord. Um, this is something that God is doing. He is calling his people to worship. The redeemed souls that have trusted in, through faith in him, he is calling together to worship him, to be in awe of him. His greatness, his majesty. Yes, he's seeking worship. God wants worship. Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 21, An hour is coming... And now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. If you go back and look at that passage in John chapters four, uh, chapter 4, you will see in just three verses, Jesus invokes the term worship eight times. He's calling people to worship. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. God's calling together uh, His redeemed to magnify Him. And, and in order to do so, in order to worship, Jesus indicates that we must do so through spirit and truth. 
At that time, this is something that that Samaritan woman at the well, she hadn't been doing either of these. And the point Jesus makes to her is that, that God is spirit. Scripture says in 1 Timothy 1.17 that as such, God is invisible. He is spirit. To be seen, God must miraculously manifest himself some way. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, that is referring to Christ, has made him known. He has revealed him. Colossians 1.15 Christ is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. Today Christ is seated in heaven at the right hand of his Father. So Christians don't worship what we see. We don't worship what we see. We worship God in spirit and through the truths that we know about him. God is spirit. We worship in truth. Jesus told that same Samaritan woman, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know. Get that? What we know. For salvation is from the Jews. It's noteworthy that Jesus suggests here that salvation is essential to worship. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews, Jesus said. Salvation is essential to worship. Those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. And and spirit just indicates that we worship from our innermost being. In truth indicates we worship through what we know about God. Doctrine. Things that we know about God. We worship God through what we know. You know, there, there are so many today that say, well, we just need to, to set aside doctrine because it's divisive. It divides people. You're right. When that's said, it divides believers from unbelievers. It divides. Mary worships or magnifies God, saying in verse 47, My spirit rejoices. Her innermost being rejoices. Why does her spirit rejoice? Is it because of something that she sees? Is it because of the balance that her, is in her bank account? No. Is it because she has perfect health and has promised perfect health forever? No. Mary's spirit magnifies God because of a truth that she knows. And here it is. Here's the truth she knows in verse 47, if you look for me, with me. She says, God is my Savior. She knows salvation is central to worship. Mary begins this Magnificat realizing there's there's a dominant theme in Hebraic Scripture, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, a dominant theme that she has seen that recognizes God has saved us. God has saved us. In Matthew 1.21, an angel tells uh, Joseph to take... Mary as your wife. She's already pregnant. Take her as your wife. And concerning the holy child, the angel says, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God can't be worshipped by people who won't acknowledge their sins. Whether it's in song, or whether it's in in, uh, prayer, or whether it is in teaching, God is worshipped through the acknowledgement that we have a diagnosis of a sin problem. We have a sin problem. You know, so much music today. We talk about music and, and modern things that are going on, and I'm not against 
modern stuff at all. Uh, but so much of the modern music does not acknowledge sin. Doesn't bring up sin. Doesn't talk about sin. Doesn't want to bother people with the idea of sin or the problem of sin. And you can really sing many of these latest songs, not all, some are quite good. But you can sing many of these latest songs that you hear to your boyfriend. And it would perfectly apply. They're so superficial. Nothing about how we've been redeemed. Nothing about sin. Nothing about what Christ has done. That He has bled and He has died and He has raised from the grave. We, We need to know doctrinal truth. We need to know something in order to worship and magnify God. Especially that Christ is Savior has spared us from the wrath of God that will come upon the sons of disobedience. He saved us. Instead, today, worship so often becomes a pursuit of an emotional feeling. Something that makes me emotional. And many select a church based on atmosphere, the music, the lighting, a message that really makes people feel good. Hit the fog button, uh, Gerald. But virtually all the praises of Mary here are biblical truths and covenant promises that she intellectually knows. Stuff that she knows. She knows and confesses that God is her Savior. She cries out, God is her Savior, and I magnify God for that, she says. So we ought to immediately be able to put to rest any false or fabricated doctrine that Mary was born without sin. No. um, Roman Catholics reference a doctrine that they call the Immaculate Conception. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You might have thought that the Immaculate Conception refers to Christ. That would be wrong in Catholic theology. They refer to Mary as the Immaculate One born without sin. That's patently false. They back up some of those claims from this passage we're looking at is the reason I bring it up. But Mary had a human father, a human mother, a human nature. Only Christ, as we have studied over the last several weeks, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. His father is God and was out without sin. God being his father, Christ was born the son of God, having a divine nature, sinless and perfect, Mary was conceived just like the rest of us. She had a sin problem. We have a sin problem. The fact that she has a sin problem is proven by the fact that she refers to God as her Savior. Her Magnificat exalts God. It doesn't exalt Mary. This passage is not about Mary. God is calling worshipers to himself, not to Mary. Yes, she is blessed. As we look at the passage, she's blessed. Why is she blessed? Well, she's blessed because she has a correct evaluation of herself before God. She understands herself before God. In in verse 48, Mary is responding or reacting in humility to Elizabeth's blessing that Elizabeth just gave her. And, And she redirects the praise to God, saying this, For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. Notice, humble. 
For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Who's getting the credit here? It's God. And the term that Mary uses to describe herself here uh, as humble, it also means insignificant. It means lowly. It means weak. And just as we learned a couple weeks ago when we studied uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty-eight, the based and the despised things of the world, God has chosen these things. God chooses humble things. Why does He do that? Paul tells us, so that no man may boast before God. That was in one of the songs that Pastor Weiler led us in. Just, just a moment. No man will boast before God. God raises humble, insignificant, weak, lowly people so he can display his power about how great he is. It's similar to what we read earlier in 1 Samuel regarding Hannah. You know, she carried that same stigma as Elizabeth. She was barren. She was sad. It wasn't a good state to be in in that culture. It would get you ridiculed. And if you return and read the context there of 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2, and 2, excuse me, Eli the priest, he actually thought she was drunk. She's praying with such earnest and, and, and exalting God when she's praying for a child that, that he thinks that she's worthless. But the, the Lord raises up those who are significant and weak and humble. Consequently, Hannah gives birth to a, to a mighty prophet and judge, Samuel. And God, God uses him. What's, what's Hannah's re, humble response? Is it to draw attention to herself? No. It's likewise a song magnifying God. Hannah's song that we read, everything is about magnifying God. So God's not only in the process of, of drawing people to himself, to worship Him. He's in the business of lifting up insignificant, humble, weak people, the lowly. That's good news for us. Good news for us people. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is exalted, He regards the lowly. But the haughty He knows from afar. It's, it's the prideful that God keeps at arm's length. He knows them from afar. He regards the lowly. You know, God isn't seeking out competition. He isn't seeking, seeking out people um, that want to glory in their own accomplishments and, and the pride and the arrogance that comes with success in this world. Uh, a lot of time they want to draw attention to themselves rather to, than to Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, it is hard for a rich man to enter heaven. God typically keeps him at arm's length. That's Matthew 19.23. Romans 12.16 Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do we get that? Associate with the lowly. Why would any of us want to associate with lowly? James tells us why. This is very important. Please listen. James says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? Yes. 
James 2.5? The answer is yes. Mary rejoices that God has chosen the poor, the meek, the lowly. And they've given the lowly a purpose. They've given the lowly something to boast about. The Lord. What else could we boast about? The car I drive? For what? We can boast in the Lord. We can magnify His name. How often we see it as the poorest, it is the, the lowliest, it is, it is the meekest people that are elevating God. The poorest of society, lifting up and magnifying God's holy name. That gives each of us here a platform to magnify God, a purpose in life, to lift up the salvation of the Lord just as Mary does. Let me tell you about my Savior. Let me tell you how great He is. Let me tell you what He's done for me. He saved me. That's something to boast about. Oh. We have to be very careful, very cautious about this prosperity gospel that God wants all of us to be rich. We'll talk about that in a moment. We need to be cautious. Humble Mary realized she hadn't earned any status with God. She hadn't earned anything. It wasn't something due her. God is not a debtor. It's not something in special about Mary. This, this birth, this conception, and the, and the birth that will come, it came through the grace and the unmerited favor of God. She saw that. I'm just lowly, she says. And now, because of what God has done for her, all of Christians can testify about Mary. Whoa, how blessed! How blessed to be the mother of Christ! We're going to be celebrating Mother's Day here shortly, and you know, I don't think my mom's quite as excited. But Mary was blessed! Isn't it wonderful as a mother, your children? The struggle you go through, you, you raise them. You do what you can to guide them. You teach them to sing, do wonderful things. You can't control all of their decisions, but motherhood is, is elevated in this passage. Wow, if you're going to be a mother, how about the mother of Jesus? All generations recognize her as blessed. She's just stating a fact. Therefore she sings praises saying, the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name, right? And in verse 50, uh, the, the arrival of her child, God's mercy is being demonstrated towards generation after generation of those who fear him, she declares. You know, God, God's also in the business. What he's doing, he's showing a lot of mercy to a whole lot of folks. Ephesians 2.4, But God being rich in mercy, because he, of his great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. It's what he has done. It's nothing we have done. And, and Mary is looking forward into the future now to, to all generations that will fear God, fear the consequences of sin, fear hell even. And then cry out to her son. A lot like Elizabeth. She was crying out in the previous passage. 
Crying out to, to Mary who is the mother of her Lord. Carrying the Lord. There's no doubt that Mary here understands the significance of this child that she's carrying. No doubt about that. She knows, she knows this is the Christ, surely. Uh, there's no other basis upon which she could base the statement, all generations will call me blessed. She knows exactly what God is doing here. A new age of grace has dawned. Sometimes it's referred to as the dispensation of God's grace. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Amazing grace. And for 2,000 years now, generation after generation of Christians have received that grace and that mercy that Paul wrote about in Ephesians 2.7. So that in the ages to come, this is even talking future for us, in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us Christians in Christ. It's not going to end here. It's going to continue on. The grace, the kindness of the Lord. He's rich in grace. And he's, he's busy now raising up worshipers from every generation. Why hasn't he come back yet? He's still raising up worshipers from each generation. Humble people. Insignificant people. From every tongue, tribe, and nation. Lifting up and magnifying the name of the Lord. He, he showered us with his mercy so that through the eternity and the ages to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace. That's what God is doing. He's having mercy. To a holy and a righteous God who showers us with riches and kindness and forgiveness and salvation and purpose. Worshiping Him. Worshiping His Son. Worshiping in the Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Worshiping Him is the only appropriate and acceptable response. The only one. Worship. To withhold worship from a holy, precious God like this, who is given such, such surpassing riches of His mercy and grace, to withhold worship from God would be damnable. Yet in Romans 1, 20, 1 verse 20, it happens. Yet although His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. People are without excuse. For even though they knew God, meaning knew He existed, they did not honor Him or give God thanks. No thanks. No gratitude, no worship. People are too proud to bend the knee. Too arrogant. And he keeps them at arm's length. The arrogant and the proud. James 4.6 tells us, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We want to be humble. God's already introduced. He's initiated this era. It's a radical role reversal in society. A role reversal. In, in verse 51, Mary says this, He has done mighty deeds with His arm. 
He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He scattered them. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. Notice he, he lifts up those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Which category you want to be in? We need to think about that. In a demonstration of her faith, Mary, Mary sings these praises of God as though they're, they're things that have already occurred. They're God's promises from the Old Testament through the prophets. And she speaks of them as if they're already accomplished, even though the Christ is still in her womb. So we know she is looking future here. But it's rock solid. Her theology is rock solid. She's speaking future fulfillment. And she realized that that when God has said that He's going to do something, He does it. He will accomplish it. He will accomplish it. And, um, you know, it's not presumption to glory in what God has said He is going to do. People say, well, don't presume. Oh, when God has said He's going to do something, you can presume. Mary here is presuming, as if it had ever occurred. It'd be similar to what Paul says in in Philippians 1, verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, what? That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Confidence. Confidence. Confidence in God, it's not, at least from what He's revealed, He will do. It's not presumption. It's simply good theology, folks. God is going to accomplish what He has said. That's important for us to reckon. When God's declared something, it's as good as done, even if it hasn't yet occurred. You know, know, some people kind of chide Christians for presuming that we're going to be in heaven. They say, well, you're being presumptive. How can you do that? It's based on the declarations of God. And and we know it's uh, based on nothing that we've done. Only on the grace of God and His forgiveness. Uh, Our mighty God has already promised us in Romans chapter 8 that those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And and nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? God has said so, it is done. Even if it's future. So when Mary employs this this completed tense, it indicates that God has scattered the proud, brought down the rulers from their thrones. It doesn't suggest she's saying this very moment. Christ isn't even crucified yet. He isn't even born yet. Instead, it displays her confidence in the certainty of of the future as God has revealed it. There will be an ultimate demise of the rich, of the greedy, of the oppressive, of the proud. How does she base that? She bases it on the plethora of Old Testament scriptures that say it will be so. It's promises from the Old Testament. She's referring to a future and ultimate judgment by a righteous king, one who, who never gets it wrong. And at that time, she knows that the king will exalt those who've been humble. 1 Peter 5, 6. Listen to this. 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. All right? Humble yourselves in anticipation at the proper time he will lift you up. And, and while we endure, while we suffer, verse 53 says that, that he has filled the hungry with good things. Mary isn't talking about food here. Actually, she's quoting a psalm. It's Psalm 107, verse 9, and it describes a spiritual satisfaction. I'll read it to you. Saying, for he, meaning God, has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. It's the soul that is satisfied. It, it is the soul that is content in what God has done. This is what she is quoting. God has filled the spiritually hungry and thirsty with joyful contentedness in what he has done. Joyful contentedness. Whatever our current situation is. That's why Paul can say, uh, with food and covering with these we shall be content. Because we know what the ultimate end is. He is satisfied the humble. The humble are satisfied. The proud are never satisfied. Never. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, spiritually humble. For theirs is the kingdom of God. As I quoted from James earlier, God has made the poor, the humble, the insignificant and lowly to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. The lowly are going to be heirs of the kingdom. And you can reckon it is going to be so. The humble are going to inherit the kingdom. We need to remember that. The church needs to remember that. Jesus offers uh, the exact same promises of future blessing in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. The kingdom. We're to be focused on the kingdom. People who know God understand what He is doing, what is going on, that He's lifting up the humble, the poor, the ostracized, the ridiculed, that He is lifting them up. People who know that are spiritually satisfied. In contrast, verse 53 says, God has sent away the rich empty-handed. Empty-handed, it's a Greek word, one word. It means hollow, empty, nada, nothing. It also means discontented, uh, like walking away thirsty from a dry cistern or well. He sent them away dry, void, empty. James 5.3 says, 5.3, Come now, you rich Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten, all their stuff. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure, meaning these last days they're living in. 
That's where you've stored your treasure. It's not going on with you. You're not sending it ahead, he's saying. It's rusted. It's wasted. It's not going to transfer. Folks, where do you want to be at this role reversal? When God sets every record straight. And we need to be careful, every one of us. Because a lot of times in this world where we're at right now, the lowly, the meek, the humble, those who are ridiculed, God, God says, Scripture says, to associate with the lowly. What we really want to do in our wicked hearts, our sinful hearts, is we want to change places with them. The rich. We want their lot. We want their money. We want their power. We want their significance. From what I see in Scripture, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want, when everything is reckoned in the end, I don't want to be, be in that. Um, God is going to do what He says. He's going to set things right. Mary, Mary has rejoiced in that. And she's magnifying God because she can see this role reversal as though it is done. Although it's not done. She said, it's finished. It's going to be. Scripture has said, God saved His chosen people from the present evil age. That's what this is, is an evil age of sin. And, and He's gathering all His redeemed elect together, preparing us to enter into the glory of His kingdom. That's what He's preparing us for. And in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9-13, through 13, God records this moment of worship that we're going to be included in, those of us who know Christ. Then I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. My scattered people will live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, uh, who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia will come to present their offerings on that day. You'll no longer need to be ashamed, for you'll no longer be rebels against me. I will remove all proud and arrogant people from among you. There will be no more haughtiness on my holy mountain. Those who are left, those who remain, lowly and humble, God says. For it is they who trust in the name of the Lord, the lowly and the humble. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will never tell lies or deceive one another. Zephaniah says they will eat and sleep in safety and no one will make them afraid. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Let them flow in endless praise. This is our lot to magnify God. That hymn we sing, it's by Francis Havergal, if I'm pronouncing that right. And one of the lines of that song is, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. And in 1878, that before years after writing this hymn, she writes a friend of hers saying this. Miss Havergal wrote a friend, quote, The Lord has shown me another little step, and of course I have taken it with extreme delight. Take my silver and my gold now means shipping off all my ornaments to the church missionary house. 
including a jewel cabinet that is really fit for a countess, where all will be accepted and disposed of for me. Nearly 50 articles are being packed up, she says. I don't think I've ever packed a box with such pleasure. Lord, why do we struggle so much for adornments? In her closing song, Mary realize, in the closing of her song, Mary realizes that God is faithful in his covenant promises given to Abraham and his children. Verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants for, forever. What is this covenant to Abraham, this promise to Abraham? It's found in Genesis 17, verses 6 and 7. Abrahamic covenant. God says to Abraham, I have made you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Generations to generations, as Mary says. To be God to, be God to you and to your descendants after you. And you might think, you know, well, this is really great for Abraham's descendants, right? But I'm not Jewish. You know, all these promises we're reading appear to be to Abraham's descendants, Israel. How do I fit in in all this? Well, I have some very good news. Very good news. The descendants that God is referring to here are not exclusively physical descendants of Abraham. There were plenty of Israelites, plenty of those who were of the seed of Abraham, who were wicked, who were excluded from the covenant. didn't matter whether they were circumcised or not. They didn't know God. Plenty were excluded from Israel. The descendants who God is describing here are Abraham's offspring who are of the same faith as Abraham, who himself believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Some of those descendants, they, they were faithful Jews, but not all. You know, in fact, looking through the Old Testament, you find huge numbers of Israelites, large numbers who perished without ever having placed their faith in God. A lot of people perished. And in Romans 9, 6, Paul the Apostle, he was an Israelite himself, remember, he exclaims, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. It's not just a physical lineage thing. In Luke chapter 3, John the baptizer warns Israel to repent, saying, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. Romans 4.13 The promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be an heir of the world comes through the righteousness of faith. That's how you become an heir. So Paul's conclusion in Galatians 3.29, let's just sum it right up. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We are in the lineage through faith. We are adopted in. We are grafted in. And the heirs of God's kingdom are Abraham's descendants who live by faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. So the question of how we become an heir to God's kingdom, it rests in the substance of our faith. The question then must be answered, what is faith? Someone here might be, 
wondering, faith in what? What is faith? The answer is really quite simple. This child that Mary is carrying in her womb is a righteous and holy God who is becoming flesh. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He will be born of a virgin. He is the son who the angel told Joseph will save his people from their sins. So God became flesh. Christ dwelt among us and he lived a sinless life we have not. And then he offered himself to suffer a wretched death that we should have died, that we deserve for our sins, And God, as a holy judge, must punish sins. He must. It's going to get punished one place or another. Either it's going to be punished at the cross through your faith in Him and you're going to be set free or you're going to suffer for your sins in hell yourself. Those are the only two options. And I had a man ask me this week, he said, you know, so what? There were a lot of people executed on crosses back then. So what? It's true. There were a lot of people executed on crosses back then. But those who died, died as sinners. They died in sin. God's sinless uh, son, in contrast, he died as Savior. He died righteous. He gave himself as a substitute for sinners. To all who would come to believe in him. And he endured the wrath of God in the payment of sins for all who will recognize I'm separated from God. I'm a sinner. I deserve death. Jesus said, I did it for you and it is finished. I'm going to call the men forward to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And by partaking in this Lord's Supper, we recognize, as Mary did 2,000 years ago,